Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you live your life shaped by the way. Well, good morning. And uh, my name's Shay. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at the Heights, and so happy to be with you guys this morning. We're going to continue through our series in Genesis. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 37 this morning uh, and start to look at the story and the life of a guy named Joseph. Uh, but the very first part of our text, it tells us these are the generations of Jacob, which we learned last week. Uh, his name was changed to Israel. And so when we look at his sons, it's really the, the history of the nation of Israel. And so I think it'd be appropriate for us this morning to pause before we jump into our sermon and just take a moment again to pray for Israel and for the, the conflict, the war that's happening uh, there right now over the course of this weekend. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, pray for peace of Jerusalem. May they, who sec- may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say peace be within you. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we do lift up uh, the nation of Israel right now. We lift up the area there, Israel and, and Palestine, and what's happening there this weekend with the attacks there in the cities there, the, the families who are struggling and suffering, the, the, uh, just the people that are there, Lord. We pray for peace. Um, Lord, we pray that you would draw hearts to yourself in the midst of, of pain and suffering and confusion. Lord, will we celebrate this morning in a, in a room where we can walk in and it is peaceful and we can enjoy the music and worship and hear from your word that this morning there are, there are people in, not experiencing that same peace. And so, Lord, we do pray for peace within the walls, within the, the borders there of Israel this morning. Lord, uh, ultimately, again, that you would draw hearts to your son, Jesus, in the midst of all of it. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, this morning, like I said, we're going to be in uh, Genesis 37, and we kind of take a, a little bit of a shift in the story that God is telling and sharing as he goes through uh, the, the beginnings here. What, what is the beginning of our world? What is the beginning of his people, of his promises, of his covenants? And we've seen a lot of that over these last few weeks, and specifically dealing with this one family, you know, we're going to spend really throughout the rest of the book is this story of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons and what happens to him and then what he's able to do because of where God places him. 13 chapters that we'll look at the story of Joseph. Then we, we had about 13 chapters or so of Abraham, about 13 chapters or so of Jacob and Isaac in there with some overlap. And so out of the, the 50 uh, chapters that we have here in Genesis, nearly 80% of it deals with this one family. For some perspective, right, creation, like something out of nothing, we got two chapters, right? The flood, God's going to look at the world and say, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to start anew, two chapters, right? So creation and the flood, which is, if we're honest, a lot of times where we spend a lot of time on, right? We get four chapters. For this one family, we get almost 40 chapters. 
Right? And so there's something that God is teaching us and sharing with us and wants us to understand and know about his interactions with this family that we would have to say is just as important, if not maybe more important, if we give it based on the amount of time he shares with us, than some of those big events that we want to look at and, and spend a lot of time on. And here's what I think it is. Here's what I've seen throughout this. It's not that we've seen role models on how to live. Would we agree on that? Right? It's pretty much dysfunction throughout a lot of it. Though we see glimpses of things that we could emulate and that we could try to aspire to. There's a lot of dysfunction wrapped up in it as well, which should give us hope because there's a lot of dysfunction in our lives. Right? But what we see is the faithfulness of God from generation to generation to generation. That we serve a God who fulfills his promises. We serve a God who, that he stays with his people in the midst of their dysfunction. When they mess it up, he's faithful. When they're doing good, he's faithful. In all of it, we see the faithfulness of God and we'll continue to see the faithfulness of God through the story of one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. How God interacts in the story of Joseph takes a little bit of a shift though. Because up until this point, from Genesis 1 up until where we were last week, we've seen the visible hand of God working and moving. If not maybe the visible hand of God, it's the audible voice of God working and moving, right? We have creation where he speaks the world into existence. And it says that his spirit was hovering over the waters, that he was there, uh, the visible hand of God working in those moments. We know he was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when they sin, that he's there walking to confront them and to call them out and back into relationship with him. With Cain and Abel, we see him confront Cain audibly. Right With Noah and the flood, we see very detailed instructions that God gives to Noah of how to build the ark and what this is going to look like. Right? And so we see the, the visible hand of God working. With Abraham, the visible hand of God is working. Even all the way up until last week with Jacob, we have a, the physical God who's wrestling in the dirt with Jacob. Right, The visible hand of God that's working and moving. In Genesis 37 to the end... God speaks one time, and it's not to Joseph, it's to Jacob. We don't see the visible hand of God working in Genesis 37 through the end the way that we've seen it working up until this point. What we see, though, kind of sounds weird to say it this way, but we see the invisible hand of God. That some of the things that we see, we see these miracles and how God moves and it's very evident and we can point to it. It's kind of tangible in a way. But for most of us, through most of our lives, it's not those events that we see, but we're able to look back and say, you know what, even though I couldn't see it at the time, I now see how God was working and moving all along the way. And maybe you're not there yet today. Maybe you're in a place where you're going, you know what? I can't see anything that God's doing. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why he's doing this. And my prayer would be that the story of Joseph would be an encouragement to you that in the midst of trials, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, to see that God is with you throughout all of it. That he's faithful to his promises throughout all of it. He's faithful even when we are unfaithful. 
And so this morning, open up to Genesis 37. We're going to read through this chapter, and it's as a narrative, I think it's helpful for us to kind of put ourselves in it. Don't just read it as words on a page, but kind of feel yourself being in this story. Genesis 37, verse 2, it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the, pasturing the flock of his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, remember that's Jacob, same person. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Remember, he's the little brother. Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Verse 12 says, now his brothers went to a pasture, uh, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, and I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. Verse 18 says, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill them. And he said to, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers and they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Verse 25. When they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead 
with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profits, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, we have, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, without doubt, is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. As we've read through the story of Jacob, and we remember he going back, he deceived his brother, deceived his father, and so he got the birthright, he got the blessing, and then they had to send him away because of the conflict between he and Esau. And then uh, he was with Laban for a, a period of time and Laban tried to deceive him, but Jacob's pretty clever and he was able to kind of deceive Laban in that and uh, be able to become a wealthy man. He comes back, uh, he's going to have this conflict with Esau potentially, and that's where we were last week where he and God have this wrestling match. And then after the wrestling match, and he sees the, the promise of God being delivered to him as well, and he has to go and uh, meet with Esau, he lines his family up. Now this time, to his credit, he goes out first to meet with Esau, so he's gotten a little bit better, but he still lines his family up, and he says, all right, we're going to put the maidservant's sons, they're going to be in the front, and then we're going to put Leah's kids, they're going to be next, and then Rachel and Joseph, you're going to be in the back. Right, now, why would he arrange his family this way, going to see his brother Esau, who he tricked and has 400 men heading towards him? I think it's pretty clear. He thought, well, if Esau starts killing people, let's make sure Rachel and Joseph are in the back. Right? So I think the brothers already have a pretty good idea of who the favorite is. Right? Now, some of you grew up in families with siblings. I did not. I'm an only child. In fact, I was the only child, grandchild, and great-grandchild for like 11 years in my family. So Christmas was awesome, all right? And then uh, all of a sudden, there, we had like, I had a bunch of first cousins all be born within like a three-year period, and they ruined it for the rest of my life, all right? And so I know a little bit about maybe what it's like to be Joseph. You know, like if there was a coat to be given, I got it, Right? Uh, I don't know what it's like to, to be the jealous sibling or have siblings that are jealous of me, but how many of you, you would say, yep, my parents had a favorite in our household. Anybody willing to admit it? I'm not asking you to say who it was. I'm just saying, yep, they had a favorite, right? And so we see Jacob has a favorite. See, the teenagers are all having conversations now. 
trying to figure out like, yeah, we know who the favorite is, right? Uh, if everybody just looked at you and your family, pretty good clue, all right? Um, but what we see because of how Jacob interacts, how he interacted with his father, how he interacts with his brother, and now how he's interacting with his kids, we see this pattern of sin that's in the life of this family. And this pattern of sin, now we see it says explicitly in the text that we just read, right? That Jacob loved Joseph more than his siblings. And what does it say about his siblings? And they hated him for it, right? Not only is it obvious that he loves him more, he gives him gifts that the others don't get. In fact, he's treating Joseph as the firstborn, even though he's not because he was the firstborn to the wife that he loved, Rachel. And so it's not just favoritism, but it's idolatry even. Now, we see he's totally oblivious to how his other sons feel about Joseph because he sends him out into to go give a report on them later, right? Not only that, that when he gets the report that Joseph is dead, it says he mourned many days and his sons and daughters tried to comfort him. See, in that culture, there would have been appropriate amount of time to mourn. And then once that time was over, you would kind of move on with life. And so the implication here is his sons and daughters are coming to him and saying, Dad, you've, you've mourned long enough. And he's saying, no, I'm going to mourn all the way to my death because of Joseph's death. Right? And so there's this favoritism that's here. And there's this idolatry that we see in Jacob. But see, it doesn't, it's not just with Jacob. We see even maybe showing up a little bit in Joseph. He's 17 He's obviously the favorite. He gets gifts that nobody else gets, right? I think we can cut Joseph maybe a little bit of slack at being a little bit arrogant in that situation, right? If anybody ever known an arrogant 17-year-old boy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of universal, right? That 17-year-old boys, lots of testosterone flowing, right? Now think, now I'm getting everything I want. I get gifts that my brothers don't get, right? It says in verse two there that he comes back and he gives this bad report. Now, there's some disagreement on what the bad report may have been. One option, we see later in the story, his dad tells him, go out, get a report, bring it back to me, right? So one option is that he's kind of been put in charge of uh, supervising his brothers. Now, again, siblings, when you got old enough to where mom and dad would leave you at home alone, right? How many times was the youngest one left in charge, right? And if it did happen, how was that going to go, right? I'll show you who's in charge, right? I'm bigger, stronger, faster. I'm going to be in charge, right? And so that's one possibility that dad in that favoritism is putting Joseph in charge. Another possibility is he's just a tattletale. And so he's out there, brothers do something bad. Joseph runs back to daddy. Hey, guess what, guess what our brothers did, right? Anybody had a tattletale in their family? Yep. If you're not raising your hand, you were the tattletale, all right? And so, yeah, and again, when it's the younger sibling, how does that go? All right? I heard somebody else over here say, no, it's the older sibling. So, all right, now, but if it's the, the younger one tattletelling on the, the older ones, Right? I think maybe up to, it doesn't say it in scripture, we don't know, but I think it's possible Joseph had already taken some beatings along the way, right? Third option that some uh, commentaries say is that it was a false report. That word bad could also be used to describe a false report. And so he's coming back and he's lying about things that his brothers are doing. He knows he's dad's favorite, 
Let me secure that up a little bit more. Right? So at the worst, Joseph's an arrogant liar at this point in his life. At the best, he's just totally oblivious to what other people think and other people's feelings and emotions. How do we know that? He has a dream where all of his brothers bow down to him. All right, again, he's the youngest. In this culture, the older does not bow down to the younger. The younger always bows down to the older. That's the culture they live in. All right, so what does Joseph do? He goes to his brothers and say, hey, let me tell you about this dream that I had. All of you are gonna bow down to me, right? And he seems pretty excited about this dream. And what does it say? They hated him even more. Not just for his dreams, but it points out for his dreams and his words. You know, it's bad enough for you to think you're going to reign over us. It's worse that you're going to come here and tell us that you're going to rule over us. It says they, they couldn't even speak a peaceful word to him or about him. And so what does Joseph do? He has another dream. And who does he go to tell this next dream to? His brothers, right? He says it goes and tells to his So Joseph's oblivious to how his interactions with his brothers are making them feel, right? Even to the point where later his dad says, hey, I want you to go check on your brothers. And he says, yeah, let's do it. I'm here. Let me go check on them. I'll bring another bad report. Happy to, dad, Right? And so Joseph's actually, when we read through the rest of his stories, Joseph's one of the characters in uh, the book of Genesis that we can actually look at for the most part and say, hey, there's someone that I want my life to look like. But at this stage of his life, it doesn't seem that he's quite there yet. God has to do some things in his life to get him to that place. God has to do some things in his brother's lives. Because what does it say? What's the word that describes his brothers throughout this interaction in Genesis 37? It's hate. They hated him. Now, you may have a sibling, you think, man, there were some times where I hated them. And there were some times where I thought like, you know what, if you go tattletale on me one more time, I'm going to kill you. But hopefully you never followed through on it. You didn't mean it. It was, it was kind of uh, figurative, right? Not literal. But we see that his brothers hate him so much that they see him coming from afar off. And how would they know it was Joseph. He's got a bright, colorful, long coat, right? And so they see him from far off and they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. That hatred has gotten to the point where now they're defined by hatred and violence. We'll see the pattern of sin that's gone through their life. In other chapters, we we see that there's sexual immorality that kind of defines them. Reuben, who maybe kind of comes across as a little bit of a hero in this story. Just a chapter earlier, we see that he's slept with one of his half-brother's mothers. We'll see in the the next chapter after this that Judah has sexual sin in his life. They've murdered other people around them. That that this is not a, a family that's being defined by their righteousness and holiness. It's these patterns of sin that's there. So hatred, violence. When it talks about them stripping the robe off of Joseph, the word for stripping the robe off is the same word that's used to skin an animal. It says that he was thrown into the pit. The the word thrown there is a word that's used to discard a dead body. Other places in scripture where it's used in reference to someone who's still alive, it's the idea of leaving them for dead. 
So it's, it, it's an extreme violence that's taken place for their brother. And you hear them say things like Judah says, well, let's not kill him. I mean, he is our brother. We'll just sell him instead. In fact, it says when they threw him in the pit, what did they do? They sat down to eat. There's no care or concern. We later find out as they're retelling this story to Joseph, not realizing they're talking to Joseph, that as they were sitting down to eat, they were hearing his cries for help. And they're just having a meal. And they sell him for what uh, best I could tell or some disagreement, but uh, most likely would equal anywhere from about a week's to a month's wages when you split it among them. So they're defined by violence. They're defined by hate. They're defined by deceit. That they go back to their dad. And interesting enough, they deceive their dad using similar tactics to how he deceived his dad. Right? With a dead goat. And so... Jacob put on goat skins to deceive his dad. They kill a goat and dip the coat in blood to deceive their dad. There's these patterns of sin that just has the potential to destroy this family. But not only do we see these patterns of sin, we see a God who's faithful to his, his promise because we see the providence of God throughout the story of Joseph. Now, it's hard to talk about the providence of God in a story of Joseph without giving a few spoilers or things that are gonna be coming up in the next few weeks. So I'm gonna have to give some spoilers, particularly when it comes to Genesis chapter 39 and, and, and 50. But we see the providence of God that's working in this life of this family that's just being torn apart by sin. Uh, it, it talks about that he gets these dreams. Joseph gets these dreams of this place that he's going to end up. Now, we understand these dreams are from God, that God's giving him a vision of what the future is going to look like. It appears that Joseph feels that these dreams are from God. But notice in the text, it doesn't say that, these, that God gave him these visions. They're just dreams, right? But God gives him these dreams of what the future is going to look like, of, that Joseph would be in this place of prominence, that he's going to be a place where he's able to, to save his family and save the entire land from a famine that's going to be coming. And so that's some of the spoiler. If you don't know the story of Joseph, that he ends up in this place where he's able to save everybody. But he goes through, as we get into Genesis 39, you're going to see that he has quite a few hardships and trials and suffering along the way, even beyond what happens to him here. And so, but Joseph is able to hold on to those dreams and trust that God is a God who keeps his promises. And so we see the providence of God, but not just in the dreams. I want you to listen to the, what we'll call the just so happens of Genesis 37. That in Genesis 37, Joseph has these dreams. We know his brothers hate him because of it. The word jealousy, it's not just like jealous of a girlfriend, but it's like, I want to murder you kind of jealousy. Right? And so he has these dreams, his brothers hate him for it. And it just so happens that even after this, his dad sends his brothers to this place to go shepherd the flock. And it just so happens that his dad seems to be fairly unaware of how the brothers feel, don't, doesn't feel like Joseph's going to be in any danger, and he sends Joseph to go give a report. And it just so happens that his brothers had moved from the place that they thought they were to this other place. And Joseph gets there and he's wandering around and it just so happens that he runs into this guy who just so happened to hear a group of people saying that they were moving from this place to shepherd in another place. And it just so happens that those people that he overheard were Joseph's brothers. 
Right? And it just so happens that it, Joseph is coming up on his brothers that they see him from afar off. We think probably because he's wearing that jacket, right? And they, so they see him from afar off and it just so happens they make this plan to kill him. And it just so happens that Reuben's there and Reuben says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit, right? And we see that Reuben had this plan to come get him later and take him back to his dad. And it just so happened that the pit doesn't have any water in it because this was probably a well or cistern. And so it just so happened that it's an empty one. And so they have a place to put him. And it seems to just so happen that maybe Reuben had left for a little while because he's not there, it seems, when Judah has the idea like, well, he's, he is our brother, so let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so it, it just so happens that as they're doing this, this group of traders is coming by. Remember, they're in a, they just so happen to be in a place that they didn't originally plan to be. This group of traders comes by and it just so happens that they're on their way to Egypt. And it just so happens, we see in the last verse, that Joseph gets sold to this guy named Potiphar. And that's going to be important as we look at Genesis 39, that it just so happened that he ended up in the house of Potiphar, where it'll just so happen that he ends up being imprisoned in a specific prison. There just so happens he ends up with two guys that he's able to just so happen to interpret some dreams for who just so happened to have some connections with Pharaoh. There's a lot of just so happens in the story of Joseph. Good, mostly bad, when you take them as individual accounts in his life. But there's a lot of things that just happened to happen the way they did in the life of Joseph. And here's the thing. If any one of those doesn't happen, everybody dies. I don't mean everybody in Joseph's family dies, though that would have been true. I mean, everybody dies. Because there's a famine that's coming. And nobody really knows how to deal with this famine. Pharaoh has some dreams and he doesn't really understand what it means. And so they, they know that there's a guy that can interpret those. And he gets put in a place where he's in a position to steward the resources of Egypt to where everybody gets to live. See, in God's providence and the invisible hand of God working and moving in the life of Joseph through all the things that it seems like God is totally absent from, it seems like God is totally quiet in these moments. And we would look at it and we would say, God, where are you in this? But it just so happened that the invisible hand of God was working and moving to work as we sang about a few moments ago and a thing that others meant for evil, that he was working for good. He was working for good. In fact, if you want a memory verse for the story of Joseph, it's Genesis 50, verse 20, when he tells his brothers that exact thing. What you meant for evil, God used for good. We get that again. Uh, Pastor Randy put these verses up there uh, last week of Romans eight twenty-eight. That he works all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That God, the providence of God, is able to take all of the evil and work it for good. But when we read the story of Joseph, we see it's it's a violent account here in uh, chapter 37. And we might look at it and say, but why did it have to happen that way? Couldn't God have stepped in and and kept it from happening that way and made it happen some other way? You see, providence is a great, 
comforting thing at 30,000 feet, but sometimes when it gets down to ground level, it's a little harder. God, why didn't you step in? Why didn't you change it? Why am I not hearing anything? Why don't I see you doing anything? Well, the reality that we see about the faithfulness of God throughout Genesis and throughout Scripture and throughout history is that he's not a God who creates the pride and the cruelty and the arrogance and the violence, but he arranges it and he overwhelms it and he overrules it so that the evil destroys itself in the end and we see the good that comes out. See, God has created a a world where we do have choice and we like that choice, right? We like to be able to choose. We've seen it in the accounts of Genesis so far that why doesn't God just make people to be able to obey him at all the time? Because we'll complain, right? And we'll rebel and we'll fight against it the whole way, but he's provided a way through his faithfulness and his loving kindness for us to be in relationship with him. That we, we see his providence working in the life. I mean, even we can take it as just regular life advice. Teenagers, the rest of us who either will be a teenager one day or were a teenager sometime back, right? Think about when your parents said, no, I'm not gonna make, let you make the decision you wanna make. I'm gonna force you to make the good decision in this place. Think about as a teenager, how thankful you were for them making you make the right decision, right? No, we weren't thankful, we say, God, why, did, why can't you let me make my own mistakes? Which is a stupid thing to say, by the way, teenagers. Right? But we all said it. We've all thought it. See, we, we want that free will. And with that free will comes sometimes evil choices done by people who, who have evil intent. And in Joseph's case, his brothers had evil intent towards him. And so that caused pain and suffering in his life. It's not God who sins, it's his brothers who sin. It's not God who sins, it's his father who sinned. And Jacob has to, or Joseph has to pay the price. But in God's providence and his goodness, he works it for good. And that should be a great comfort for us. Even if right now we can't see where God is and what he's doing, we can know that his invisible hand is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Corey Tim Boom, um, you, who some may recognize that name, others wouldn't. Corey Tim Boom was a, a Dutch Christian who, during World War II, her family was uh, protecting and hiding Jews in their home as uh, Nazi Germany was uh, invading that area. And they were found out, and she was eventually put into a Nazi uh, concentration camp. And at the end of the war, when she got out, she became a, a speaker and a, um, you know, a writer. And one of the things that she says in, in kind of knowing that context of what she's speaking out of, she says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. See, there's gonna be times in our life where we're going through a dark place, a dark tunnel, and we can't see the end. But we're gonna sit and trust. God, I'm trusting that you've got this under control. I'm trusting that your providence. See, providence and sovereignty are very similar, but they're different. Sovereignty is God's right and his ability to have authority over all things. Providence is that sovereignty with loving wisdom attached to it. That he knows what's best, he wants what's best, and he's able to accomplish what's best in our lives. 
It's the providence of God that we can rest in and trust in. But see, this providence, it's not just God moving chess pieces around a board to try to make things work out the way he wants them to in the end in some kind of grander scheme, though that's part of it. But we also see him transforming this family. And that brings us to the purpose of grace. The purpose of grace, he's not just arranging things to make history work all right, but he's arranging things in this family to change their hearts and minds. Because as we see these, another spoiler alert here for the rest of the story, we see hearts of brothers who are changed towards their father, who are compassionate towards him, not just deceiving him. Changed to their other younger brother, Benjamin, that we'll see that they have concern for him and for their father's relationship with him. We see Joseph who goes from maybe being uh, prideful and, and kind of self-centered to a great leader who's able to save the entire nation. And in God's providence, ultimately in his grace, we see him save one of the brothers named Judah, who later, Jesus, comes from his line. That God is faithful to fulfill his promises, his, the purposes of grace in the life of this family to change them and to shape them from a self-centered competing group to ones who are caring and loving for one another. And we see throughout history, they still have problems. They still have issues along the way, but we see God changing their hearts and minds towards one another in his grace. We see in Joseph's life, One of the themes of Genesis 39 as Joseph continues to have trials and tribulations and hardships and suffering. We see it said over and over again, but God was with Joseph. That in it all, God was with Joseph. You see, in scripture, the grace of God is never separated from the God of grace. In particular, in the God-man, Jesus Right, that, that it's God not just going into his bag of grace and giving out grace where it's needed. Shea messed up again. Let's give him some more grace. Right, but it's God Himself who is the grace. That He enters into it with us. That He's there with us. That in the suffering, He hasn't abandoned us, even though He may be quiet and we may not be able to see what He's doing at the moment. That He is with us through it all. That ultimately, the story of Joseph points to another man centuries later. A man who was beloved by the father, betrayed by his brothers. As we'll see in Genesis 39, that Joseph is falsely accused. And so was this other man, falsely accused, put on trial and ultimately murdered for you and for me. See, it points us to the story of Jesus. The grace of God in Jesus who we're told that his name will be God with us. The Romans 8, 28, as it talks about that he works all things out for good. What it doesn't say is, well, everything happens for a reason. Right? It doesn't say like, well, it'll turn out okay. It says he works all things for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. That when we enter into a relationship with God through faith and trust in Jesus, that he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I will make sense out of all of the stuff that's happening in your life that you haven't been able to make sense of. And whether we see it now or we see it in eternity, he promises, I am working it for good in your life. 
All of the things that are happening in your life and my providence, I am working it for my glory and for your good. And ultimately, for your joy. And so if you're here this morning, you're saying, look, I, I know, I've experienced it. There's been times when I've looked and I've said, I didn't know what God was doing, but I got to the end and I could say, God, I, I see you were moving and you were working that entire time. I wanna encourage you to do two things. One, worship him for that. Thank him for that. And two, share that with others. Because there's others in here and you're saying, you know what? I don't see how God's moving and working right now. I don't understand it. I don't see it. And maybe even I'm a little bit mad at God for what's happening. And that person needs to hear your story to say, look, God is working it for good, even if you can't see it. Trust the engineer. Trust the conductor. Trust the one who's able to have sovereignty and his providence is ruling and reigning and overwhelming all of the evil that's happening. There may be others of you who are saying, look, I, I don't know this God you're talking about. But if there's a God who says, I'll be in it with you, I want to know him. Because what's going on in my life right now, I can't do it on my own anymore. I need what the Bible says is one who sticks closer than a brother. Who says, I am with you. I know what it's like. I know the suffering you've gone through. And I am with you in that. If that's you this morning. It comes down to putting your trust and your faith in Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I want to know a God who knows what it's like to deal with the things I've dealt with, who suffered and been tempted in every way, but is without sin. I need you to be with me and walk with me in that. If that's you this morning, in a few moments, the doors in the back will open up. We'll close things. And there's a desk out there called the Next Steps Desk. You can go out there and talk to someone and they'll share with you. Here's how you can know Jesus and be confident that he'll never leave you or forsake you and be with you through it all. But wherever we are this morning, I hope the story of Joseph is an encouraging encouragement to us to trust because out of all the things that may have done, been done to us, God's ultimate provision is that he made a way for you to be in relationship with him through Jesus. And so I pray that we'd either be encouraged knowing Jesus is with me or today we would take the step to say, I need to know this Jesus who never leaves me or forsakes me is with me through it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time we've had this morning. Thank you for your word and thank you for your example that you have in the story of Joseph, of your faithfulness and your goodness, even when we don't see you moving. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would be a people who trust the engineer when the tunnel gets dark, knowing that you've provided a way to make all things work for good for those who love you. Lord, it's in your name we pray, amen.